0: Good morning. So glad to see so many coming out to uh, church today. It's always a pleasure to see pews full, or in this case, chairs. Our church uh, in Queens, in Corona, Queens, uh, still has those uh, old-fashioned pews. Pastor Nathan knows them well. (laughs) They still creak the same way, brother. (laughs) Uh, My name is Christian Acosta, and uh, I'm an associate pastor of Faith Baptist Church in Corona, Queens. Uh, Very grateful for the opportunity that uh, Pastor Nathan's uh, given me uh, to come here and and speak for you all. I have come before, it's been a little while, uh, but we were most recently here for the Christmas program uh, that you may remember when uh, our choir uh, performed uh, mostly a musical cantata with scripture readings, Lord of Glory. And uh, so many of you came out for that and invited people. And what a blessing it was to see a full house. And uh, we are grateful for uh, many of your musicians to come out uh, for our performance, which was the following week in December. And uh, that was a huge blessing to uh, just to get to work together and collaborate that way. Um, I've been the associate pastor there at Faith Baptist for uh, about six years now. The seven, uh, sorry, 2017. So this is 2024, seven years. Um, as, of this, as of this month, it's seven. And I've been so blessed to be there. Um, it's actually the church I grew up in, so I know Pastor Nathan and his family pretty well. And uh, right now, currently work alongside his father, uh, Jim Swanson, and uh, grateful for his mentorship and leadership in my own life. And it was really because of Pastor Swanson's influence in my life um, that I went into the ministry, because of the opportunities that he gave me and my siblings and my family to serve in the local church through various things. Um, you know, whether it was uh, helping with youth ministries with, with the children uh, or passing out tracts on Saturday, or cleaning the church, or helping with Vacation Bible School in the summertime, so many ways that um, you know, our church sought to invest in young people, and really, I would say Pastor Nathan and I are very much uh, the fruit of that, and many others in our church as well, and we, we thank God for the, the heritage we have at Faith. Um, this morning, I'd like to uh, share with you from a passage of Scripture we're probably all familiar with, and yet one that um, maybe you... Uh, we could all, in the beginning of the year, take some time to reconsider and relook at what is it saying to us. And before we uh, dive into the message, let's look at, if you're not already there, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. That's where we're going to be, the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. If you can find the Psalms in the middle of the Bible, just go a couple of books later, and you'll find Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And let's look at What the writer, King Solomon, tells us here in the first 11 verses. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, I'll be reading uh, from the the New King James, uh, and many of you may have other versions as well, that's okay. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1 To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. Verse 9, what profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He, that is God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. Let's open this morning in a word of prayer. Oh God, we come to you today thankful for these words of truth, thankful that these words that are unchanged from the dawn of time, that still speak to us in echoes from eternity. Lord, we love the fact that this book is still relevant today. That's why we can open it afresh this morning and come with that that passion and that desire to know you through the scriptures. Your word is truth. It is inspired. It does give us everything we need for life and godliness. Oh Lord, open up these precious words to us today. I pray for those in the room, Lord, may you open their hearts and their eyes to what the Spirit of God is speaking to us today. Lord, use me as as your vessel to communicate the truth that's in the text here. Not my own thoughts and opinions, but Lord, your words and your truth. Lord, I pray for anyone in the room today that may not know you as Savior. Lord, may they come to you. May they be drawn by the word of God and by the message of the gospel. Lord, may you open their spiritual eyes to be born again and to receive your Son, Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross for them. We thank you, Lord, for a time to gather as God's people and worship you in this way. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. Amen. You know, organized people have found a place for everything to go in their home. If you look at their kitchen, it looks like Martha Stewart could have put it together. If you look at their their living room, their bedroom, it looks like, you know, the latest, you know, interior design, magazine, I mean everything looks like it's well-organized, well put together because everything has a place. Now it's quite difficult to be an organized parent because, of course, children don't quite understand this concept of organization, do they? It's difficult for a young child, especially toddler age and below, to grasp this idea that everything has a place. Now, my son is uh, in the audience today, and so any uh, little voices you hear... Um, is him Um, but our oldest son Raphael uh, when I took this picture he was one years old now he's two so this is uh, a little dated but um, a year ago um, Raphael had this habit of picking out any book he wanted from the living his living room library we have a bookshelf in our living room and there are two shelves dedicated to his books all kinds of books that he likes And a year ago, he was really into just taking whatever he wanted from the bookshelf, sitting down on the couch with us and saying, you know, pretty much, he couldn't speak, but he was like, Mom, Dad, read to me. Okay, so we we read the book, we get through it, and as soon as we were done, he'd rush right off to the bookshelf to grab another one, and another one, and another one. And we did this over and over again, um, until there were just all these books strewn out all, all over the living room. Now, of course, he doesn't realize that Initially, when you take out something, it's got to be put back, because it has a place. And so uh, a year ago, we were working pretty hard at getting him to learn this concept, that your books have a place, Rafi, so make sure you put your books back before we get another one out. And a year and a half later, we're still working on that. That's okay, Um, as long as he likes to read. That's that's definitely uh, what we enjoy. Now, while we generally understand this concept with our belongings right? Whether for kids, books and toys and games, uh, or more adult things like, uh, you know, our keys, our wallet, our clothes, our dishes, wherever they belong, right? We struggle to accept this concept that everything has a place when it comes to our lives and especially when it comes to time, because time is so intangible. I can know where my coat is supposed to be hung in the closet or put away clean dishes, but how do all the events of my life have a place? How is it possible that God allows the good and the bad to be held together, the joyful and the tragic? How how do they run along the same timeline? How do they all fit in the same place together? This is how God wants us to think about our time. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the Lord has a lesson to teach us about time, primarily how we view it, and how we use it. Through Solomon, the writer, God is revealing to us that everything has a season. It's the very first phrase of the chapter we're looking at today. There's a time for every purpose under heaven. That means every activity, every event, every matter in your life, it was placed there by God in his sovereign plan and purpose. This is going to be the central thought for us today, that God has a time for everything. Now we kind of know this sort of intuitively, but even at the end of the passage, Solomon comes right out and tells us. But if you're reading this from the beginning, you, don't, you really have no idea what he might be saying. He doesn't name God in the opening verses, but it becomes clear to us the more we read the passage. God controls time, He controls your future, and He is organizing every aspect of your life for a reason. Now let's, before we dive into the text itself, let's step back a little bit and grab just an, an overall perspective on what this book is about. Ecclesiastes is probably one of the most difficult books in the Old Testament, if not the whole Bible, to, to grasp. It's not that long. It's only 12 chapters. But these 12 chapters are devoted to King Solomon telling us about what life is like under the sun, as he likes to say in this book, Ecclesiastes is one of the few books in scripture you can really sum up with one word. Many of you probably know what it is already. Vanity. Vanity. This word, which appears 38 times in the book, is central to Solomon's premise. It's a word that carries the idea of meaningless, empty, futile. And in fact, uh, many of you are holding um, uh, New American Standard Bibles in your hands, that's the word that they opt for. Many modern Bible versions opt for that word futile over vanity. The word that's being used there is the Hebrew word "havel," and "havel" is pictured quite well in the book um, in uh, one of the passages where it reads, all is vanity or futility and grasping for the wind. "Havel" does not imply that life is meaningless or life is without purpose. Rather, it portrays life as something real, but intangible. Something you can't quite grasp with your hand. Just like wind is real, smoke is real, but if I try to reach out and touch it, I'm not touching anything. There's nothing that my senses are feeling. So like those things, we can experience life and all of its effects on us, but the truth of the matter is we are powerless to do anything about it. Time just runs, life just goes on. And this empty feeling of life, at least from the human standpoint, it's a common experience we all share. We all know what that's like for time to just pass us by, for time to go so quickly, move so effortlessly. If you're a parent especially, you probably know that feeling. How is it that my little one-year-old is now going off to college? It doesn't make sense how time goes that quickly, but that's how time works, right? And even if you're not a parent, you probably know that feeling as well. How have I been at the same job for 10, 15 years? I I just started. But you realize, no, I've been here a long time. That's how time works. Solomon's life actually provides an apt example of this same truth. Even though he started out as a, a righteous king, he was, of course, King David's son who took the throne after him. Solomon fell into sin. Because he chased after these idolatrous pagan women. And those illicit relationships, many, many that he had, poisoned his heart against God. His pursuit of pleasure and riches and possessions and higher learning all left him feeling empty. That's the record you read of his life in Ecclesiastes. He realized none of those things he pursued outside of God could really satisfy him in the end. After Solomon records all of these vain pursuits in the opening chapters of the book, now we come to chapter three, a poem about time. Time, an ethereal, intangible concept. I can't engage with time through my senses. I don't see it, I don't smell it, I don't taste it. I don't hear it passing, and yet it's real nonetheless. It doesn't stop time from having an undesirable effect on my life. I can't click the plus button and add more minutes and more hours to my life. I can't click the minus button and decide I want a little less time today. No, time is just gonna go as it it, uh, has been intended to. Throughout the book, Solomon reminds us time marches on with or without our consent. It goes without saying that time affects things like our physical appearance, or our senses of sight and hearing, our memory. All these things we realize, one day, I'm not going to have quite the memory I used to. My hearing, my sight is not going to quite be what it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. But we also read in Ecclesiastes that people in, the, in our world, they come and they go while the universe is going to remain the same. The mountains, the trees, they all do their thing while my life passes me by. Time does not discriminate based on physical ability or mental capacity. Solomon writes about that in chapter 9. And at the end of the day, no matter what, we all have the same appointment with time at the end of our lives. None of us can escape that. And we don't know what that appointment is. Now, you look at time in this way that Solomon is writing about it, and it might seem like time is just this unfair capricious hand of fate that's working against you at every step, but this chapter is actually proving the opposite. Instead of time being a mechanism, a tool of this arbitrary force that we have no idea like fate or destiny, everything in time, Solomon tells us, is put in its proper place by a gracious creator. He has a purpose for all the events and all the happenstance of life, Nothing is a result of his, or time's, capricious whim. Everything in our lives comes from his sovereign choice. And that should be of great comfort to us. Now, we don't see the whole scope of what God does in time, but we can learn to view time from the way that he sees it. And that's really what Solomon is trying to help us grasp here in the chapter. God sees everything as having a suitable time, even the bad things. Notice in this chapter that Solomon, even though he's writing more as a, a cynic, more as a, you know, a, kind of a, a, a person jaded by the, the, the events of his life and the choices he's made, he's accepted this fact that though I have allowed my life to pass me by, God is still in control. And Solomon in this chapter includes everything having a time, from normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill things to extraordinary and even unexpected events now let's we're not going to look at this list in detail i mean we we all know what being born is what death is planting and healing and breaking down we know what all these things are so i just kind of want to take a a big overall picture of what is solomon trying to tell us from this poem about time looking especially at verses like verse 3 a time to kill or verse 8 a time to hate, a time of war. Wait a second here. Is Solomon saying that these things are permissible? Is Solomon saying these things are good and right? There are some Christians who believe that Jesus taught his followers to be pacifists, right? Ne- never is violence to be a part of a Christian's life, whether for you know, personal injustice, personal defense, or even defending your country in war. There's no uh, occasion in which a Christian should be doing that. But, you know, as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, Jesus embraced all of the Old Testament teaching on these matters. Um, Not just the Torah, not just the first five books of Moses, but even books like this and what it's telling us here. So these actions, right, these actions that are, are inflicting harm on someone, you know, killing and war and even hatred, God says they have a time, they have a place. There's a purpose for them. So even though these actions, though drastic and life-altering, they have a purpose in God's timetable. So they're not inherently sinful. The same goes for many of the ordinary human activities we see throughout the chapter, right? Again, planting and sowing and tearing, gathering stones. So what we can take out of that is that, well, yeah, we should weep and mourn in response to a very sad difficult, grievous situation, but you should also laugh and dance and celebrate and clap your hands when good things happen, when your boss gives you that raise finally, when you welcome another child into the world, when your favorite ball team wins. God has a place for those emotions too. And so as Christians, what we should be able to do is hold both ends of that emotional spectrum in balance because they both have a place in my life as a Christian In a fallen world, it might be difficult for us to accept the appropriateness of pain and tragedy in life. So on the one hand, we enjoy laughing with our loved ones around the Christmas dinner table, rejoicing when our friend recovers in the hospital from a sickness. But on the other hand, we have a hard time accepting the grief, the pain, the agony that can follow suffering and even death these realities are also a part of life. And if life is going to make sense to you at all as a Christian, we have to embrace all of these realities together, the good and the bad, the pleasant and enjoyable circumstances along with the hard and grievous ones. Now, it might be difficult to avoid the uncomfortable absence of God in the first part of the chapter, the first eight verses. And on a surface reading, you might think, wait a second, is Solomon conceding to the fact that time is actually just this, again, arbitrary force at work in the world? Well, you know, without God, time can certainly feel just like that. Outside of faith, life seems to just happen. And it is out of my control how life happens to me. We all have to experience good days and bad days, Uh, We all have to experience rain or sunshine. We can't stop the sands of time from pouring down the hourglass. We have to accept that as an inevitable part of life. But even with that cynical perspective, Solomon can't help himself. He has to remind us God is ultimately the one in control, right? He has made everything beautiful in his time, verse 11. Uh, I believe in the New American Standard it might be appropriate. It's a similar idea, right? God has put it there with a purpose in mind. And it's a good thing that he put it there. Reading beyond verse 8, we see how the Lord is orchestrating man's relationship with time. First of all, even with the absence of God in the beginning of the passage, whatever God brings to pass is beautiful. It is appropriate. It's worthwhile in his time. And he makes it so. So as a Christian, it's my job to trust... Everything that I experience has its own value in my life. But not only that, he has also placed eternity in our hearts. I appreciate Brother Victor mentioning mentioning that in his prayer today. I don't know if you read the passage ahead of time, Brother, but um, it's very appropriate. He has placed eternity in our hearts. It means that in every human heart, there is an insatiable longing for eternity, We want to be outside of the bounds of time. And you know what? We can't help it because we're made in the image of God, a timeless being. And there's a part of us, the human soul, that is eternal, that is going to spend eternity somewhere. Not this frail human body that God is going to remake one day, right, in the resurrection. But that eternal part of me, that soul, who I really am on the inside, that's that eternity in my heart that God has put there. Nonetheless, we will never be able to discover everything that God does from beginning to end, right? So even though the eternity has been placed there into my heart, even though my soul is eternal, even though I have that longing to be outside of the bounds of time, at the end of the day, I can't know everything God is going to do. I don't know what the rest of my story is, but God has it written down. God has had it written down from the beginning of time. And that ought to greatly encourage me. That ought to greatly comfort me. That whatever happens in my life that might seem out of sorts, it might seem out of place, it might seem totally like random happenstance, God put it there for a reason. What a great joy that is. Solomon lived the good life, we might say. He was rich, wealthy, prosperous, powerful, He had all the women he could ask for. He had all the education and academic achievements he could ask for. This was a very wealthy, prosperous man, well-situated man, a king no less. But that did not prevent him from asking these hard existential questions. Living a life of ease and pleasure doesn't guarantee that you will never have these questions that you will never doubt the meaning of life or its value. Perhaps, as uh, the writer C.S. Lewis once said, God actually speaks louder to us through our comfort and ease rather than through our suffering and tragedy. He speaks through both. He speaks through our grief, speaks through our sorrow, but he's also trying to speak through our ease and comfortable lives as well. And he's trying to say, look, those are not going to give you the satisfaction you think they will. You can buy the biggest house, you can have the fanciest car, you can get the nicest, flashiest degree, it will not satisfy you. doesn't mean they're wrong, it just means that's not the hole in your heart that needs to be filled. It's the God-shaped hole that needs to be filled. And God is still speaking in those terms today. Now Solomon, his experience warns us against wasting our lives in idle pleasures, There's a time for all the blessings that life affords us, but those things are also futile when I pursue them to reckless abandon. So rather than take Solomon as my example of how I should think about time and how I should think about my life, maybe I should look at the new Solomon, the perfect man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, and follow his example, the, the way that he demonstrated how a human being is to live their lives in relation to the time here on earth. We know that Jesus, if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see it all throughout the story of Christ. He always lived with this ever-present sense of his mission. That there was some goal he was reaching for, right? We know this especially with the words that he uh, says in just about all the Gospels, the Son of Man... Did not come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, for Jesus, the cross was always before him. The cross was always in the forefront of his mind. I'm not talking about when he was an infant. When he was a man, when he was preparing for his ministry, when he was getting baptized by John the Baptist, when he was tempted in the wilderness, all of those early stages of his ministry, he knew what the climax was going to be. He knew what the end of the story held for him because he knew why the son of man came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many this perspective is even more prevalent in the gospel of john you read several on several occasions this phrase over and over again how jesus or john as the narrator of the story refers to the hour of christ not yet coming Jesus says this to his mother in a familiar story, the wedding at Cana. Remember this story where Jesus is at a friend's wedding, someone he probably knew, and they run out of wine, right, at this feast, at this uh, celebration. And Mary, his mother, his earthly mother, turns to him and says, Jesus, they've run out of wine. And the implication is, Jesus, can you do something about this? And what does Jesus tell her? Woman, what does your concern have to do with me, my hour, has not yet come. Now, that might seem like he was being rude to his mom. He wasn't. We're not going to get into that story. But notice that last phrase, my hour has not yet come. He knew it wasn't time. This was the beginning of his ministry. It wasn't the right time for him to to present himself as it were. And yet, he still did what his mom said. Interestingly enough, right? John then refers later on to the Lord's hour not yet coming even though the Jewish leaders would seek to apprehend him on different occasions. Therefore, John 7, verse 30, therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. It wasn't the time. It wasn't the time yet for the cross. He still had much more miracles to do, much more teaching to do, much more of a, a presentation of his ministry. But then the time actually came, right? Starting in John chapter 12, we read how the the rest of the gospel is showing us now the hour has come. Now, as we get into the, the passion week that John explores so deeply in the rest of his gospel, his betrayal, his arrest, his trial before the Jewish leaders and Pilate, ending finally at the crucifixion. Jesus admitted this openly to a crowd that his hour had come, but he also admits it, he tells it to his father in his high priestly prayer john 17 father the hour has come glorify your son that your son also may glorify you jesus knew for 3 years all along this was coming and he waited while his enemies sought to take him in vain jesus though in this circumstance he's praying in the garden of gethsemane he accepted the Father's timing of his agonizing death. He wasn't sitting back, sitting on his hands, waiting for things to happen. Oh, no. He was actively moving toward these events transpiring. As he approached his time, Jesus had two goals in mind. The Father's glory and finishing his work. Those were his goals. And with a clear conscience, the Lord could say in that prayer that through his death, the Father would be glorified And he would accomplish the work for which he was sent. I I love these words at the beginning of that prayer. He could say affirmatively, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you've given me to do. What if you and I could have that same relationship with our lives, with our time, with our mission and purpose in life, that I actively know what God wants me to do, and I am pursuing that with everything that I have not allowing myself to be distracted by anything. When you think of the time that God has given you, do you consider how you are using that time? When he's given you time, opportunities, relationships, entrusted to your care, why does he give you those things? They're present in your life for a reason. He gave them to you so you can bring him glory by finishing what he began in you. I think Solomon finally realized this as well, even though he wasted his years with sinful pleasures, by the end of Ecclesiastes, what do we find that he came to realize? That ultimately those vain pleasures meant nothing. They were futile, they were vain, but fearing God and keeping his commandments, that is man's all. Some of the very last words of that book. We can't control time in any shape or fashion but we can control how we use it. And if you choose to fill your days like Solomon, well, you're going to arrive at the same conclusion he did, just in the wrong way, in a way that's harmful to you. All is hevel. All is futile. Everything from pleasures to possessions. They mean nothing. You can't take them with you. There's no U-Haul at the back of the hearse. It's just your life, your walk with God that is going to matter and what you did to accomplish the mission that he's given you. But if you see time in the way that Christ did, then you're going to live like a marked man or woman. You know that your day is coming. You know that death is inevitable. And so until that time comes, you have an opportunity to bring God the most glory by doing what he's called you to do. Don't go back and try to fix past mistakes or dwell on those things. That's not the purpose of this. But you can choose today, this year, 2024, as a fresh slate for making choices that fear God and obey his commandments. We're coming to the end here. I want to leave you all with just three simple applications for today. What do we learn from a passage like this? Well, there's really no better way to summarize it than how Solomon does in the very first verse, which is everything has a season. And I need to accept that. The good and the bad. But we can't neglect to mention who it is. Identify the one who is in control of all time. It's God, right? The Lord of the universe. He's the one who controls all time. So when you have blessed seasons of life, give him the credit for it. When you got that Christmas bonus at the end of the year, uh, when your kids come home with straight A's from school, when you finally got to share the gospel with that neighbor you've been wanting to talk to, give God the glory. Praise him for it. Those are blessings that come from him. But do not deny the Lord his due when painful, tragic, and terrible circumstances come into your life as well. When your boss has to let you go from a job you've been at for many, many years, you've been a faithful worker, when your child is sadly diagnosed with a recurring illness or if your car gets into a serious accident or has other car problems, remember the Lord had a time for all of those things too. My wife and I had uh, an opportunity recently to apply this in our own lives. Um, Back in October of last year, uh, some friends of ours actually gifted us a Honda minivan. They knew that we were um, in need of an upgrade to our vehicle and um, they were very gracious and, and gave us one back in the fall. And I kid you not, within a few weeks, we're taking the car out uh, for our Thanksgiving vacation. It's our first long car trip going uh, into upstate New York to visit some family. And someone sideswipes us on the George Washington Bridge and damages our car. So thankfully, no one was hurt and there was really no major damage, but it was not drivable. And we had weeks and weeks of waiting for this car to finally get repaired, for the insurance to come through, all of those things. But as we were driving away from the accident, my wife and I, you know, of course it's hard to just talk and and think and process everything that happened, but we took some time that night to pray together and just reassure ourselves God even allowed this to happen. And that's hard to accept, but it's the truth. And praise God he kept us safe and there was nothing more that came from that. Um, And our car is fixed. That's another blessing from God. Um, It's in the the parking lot today. Um, But that's the goodness of God, both the accident and the repair. Now, along these lines, we can't fall prey to this false idea. Oh, you know, all the terrible things that are happening, they only happen to me. No one else gets to experience all the pain and suffering that I've gone through. You don't know how much I've suffered in my life. We've all heard this, and we've probably all even said it or thought it. But how many times do we convince ourselves of this? No one suffers like I do. We think everyone else at church, all of our co-workers, their lives are so easy, their lives are so carefree. Don't believe that lie. Everyone has their own struggles and challenges that God is using to shape them into his image. Now, what God does with unbelievers, that's his business. The rain and the sun both uh, are shining or pouring down on the just and the unjust. But with his children, God is most certainly acting in accordance with his will. And, you know, even as Ecclesiastes says in chapter 9, time and chance happen to them all. There's no discrimination there. You don't know the kinds of troubles that people face around you on a daily basis. People sitting in this room, you have no idea what they might be going through with a spouse, with extended family, with their coworkers, with their kids at school. Comparing yourself to other people's suffering is a fool's errand. It's just not worthwhile. Focus on what God is doing in you and in your family before you envy the blessings of others or before you feel sorry for yourself because of what you might be going through. The second lesson we can learn is that what God brings to pass is good. And This might be the hardest for us to accept. We, no one wants to question God's goodness when blessings come, but it's when the trials come. That's when it starts to become harder to believe that. It takes a special kind of person to stay true to the Lord in the midst of suffering. And in this regard, I can't help but think of my mother-in-law, Christine, and what she went through from basically 2021 to 2022, um, and even into last year. You know, a couple years ago, Mom was living on her own down in uh, North South Carolina. She was cooking her own food. She was working. She was driving around on her own, getting groceries, getting groceries going to the store, visiting with church friends, doing, you know just living her normal life. But after staying with us for several weeks, and she had radiology treatments here in the city for a tumor and, and months of therapy uh, a couple years ago, after that, she never really enjoyed a normal life until, you know, until she passed. So for about a year plus, it's probably the most difficult year of her life, She lost all of that independence. She lost all the things that she once had. That ability to have your own income and go to the store on your own and live in your own apartment and all the the normal things we take for granted. Just gone like that. That was heartbreaking for her, for us. But through the whole year that mom was with us and eventually staying in a nursing home, I was just amazed at her faith and her joy in the Lord. You know, I never once heard from Mom a word of self pity, a word of complaint, anything that showed she felt sorry for herself. She just trusted God completely. She spent her days at that rehab center uh, reading her Bible. Um, She would listen to Christian music. She would visit with friends, you know, people who would come in and talk to her. She would write to uh, you know friends and family, even though her handwriting was terrible. It didn't matter to her. She just wanted to do these things to show her love for the people around her. You know, rehab centers and nursing homes are often filled with very broken, hurting people. And though mom was hurting physically, she was hopeful and she was patient through her suffering because she knew Christ, because of her relationship with God. She trusted him to see her through that difficult time, and she always had a hope that she might get out. And sadly, that hope was never realized, that's okay. She's in glory now. I can only hope that when I reach that stage of life, I can have that same hopeful, optimistic outlook that, you know what, God, you allowed this to happen to me, and that's okay. that could happen tomorrow. That could happen 50 years from now. Whenever it happens, I want to be ready to know that, God, this is from you, and I thank you for it. He is good in everything that he does. Do you believe that? One final truth for us as we close here. You do not know the end of your story. You don't know it. No matter how much we like to think we have a grasp on what the future holds, no matter how many of us might have a 10-year, 20-year plan, you don't know what the story holds for you. We don't control time. We can't read the story of our lives from beginning to end, only from the beginning until today. Until today, you know exactly what happened, or some of it. What you, what you can actually remember. But afterward, you just don't know. But we know who controls time and who knows the end of the story. And Solomon concludes this potent passage. We didn't get a chance to look at this in depth, but I want to show you verses 14 and 15 from this chapter where Solomon writes this. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. That which is, has already been. What is to be has already been. And God requires an account of what is past. Are you living for the eternal things that God is doing? Are you responding to his working in your life with fear and holy living? Do you realize that what transpires in your life, all the joy and the blessings, but also the tragedies and the heartbreaks, they've already happened to others and they're gonna to continue to happen to you and to the people around you. That's just the way of the world. And are you ready? Like that verse, the end of the verse says, verse 15, are you ready for the accounting of God at the end of the story? If you read Ecclesiastes, it might seem like this depressing uh, diatribe of a pessimistic old man, but Solomon's contribution to scripture is only intended to give you despair and hopelessness if you're not a believer. <laughs> If you're looking at life from unredeemed, unsanctified lenses, for the people who live without God, yeah, life is hopeless. And unfortunately, he lived that way for much of his reign. Only till it was too late did he realize that the brevity and emptiness of life should bring us to God and should give us hope that what he does is good and beautiful. Meaning in life comes from life lived in service to him. If you're familiar with the fantasy novels, The Lord of the Rings, then you know in the first book of that trilogy, we follow the story of a small, insignificant hobbit named Frodo. And he's entrusted by his mentor, Gandalf, a wizard, with this one ring of power. And along with a small band of people around him, he is tasked with taking this ring of power to a mountain to be destroyed in fire. And along their travels, uh, especially in the beginning, Frodo is lamenting the fact that this ring came to him in the first place. He, He doesn't understand why is it that this ring turned up in his lifetime. Why is he the one that has to carry it? And why does he have this mission? His wise mentor, Gandalf, responds to Frodo's complaints with these profound words. He says, so do I, and so do all who live to see such times but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. You can't decide the time of year you were born or the time of year that you leave the stage. You can't decide the tragedies that come your way, but what you can decide is what to do with the time given to you. So use this new year, friends, to manage your time, to organize it for the glory of God in your life, in your family, in your church.